Let's pray. God, we take time on Sunday mornings and we stop everything else that we're doing. We set aside all of our other plans and we set aside all of our priorities and responsibilities and we, we focus on you. And God, we should spend every minute of every day doing that. But thank you that uh, you have called us to be your bride. You've called us to be the church. And the church isn't an institution. The church is a bunch of people who realize that we are called by you to be something special. And so as we take time this morning and look to you, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. You would help us to see what it is that's happening in the book of Acts that not just happened 2,000 years ago, but that we can learn from and, and we can grow from today. And so, God, we just give this time to you and trust that it would be to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Acts 13, if you're in your Acts journals, uh, it's page 72, and then we're going to be jumping all the way through to page 82. If you don't have one of those, they're out in the back. We'd love to have you one. If you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 13, starting in the first verse, this is an important passage today. It is timely in our world. Here's why. There was a book written years and years ago, started out the tale of two cities. Well, this passage today is about the tale of two churches, the one you don't want to be and the one you do want to be, the one you don't want to be a part of and the one that we do. And so we're going to go through the entire chapter of Acts 13. I'm going to move fast. I'm not going to use my super fast voice because you wouldn't understand that one. But I am going to talk fast just because we got a lot of verses to cover. And so if you're taking notes, you know, you might end up having to learn a little bit of shorthand this morning. Remember now, Acts is the foundation of the Christian church. The book of Acts is what where God began to do all of his work throughout the world. You know, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came is, is where it really began. The church took off, and we're picking up now where the church is moving from just for the Jewish people, the good news of Jesus is going out to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. We, as a congregation, we're called to be a church like the church in the book of Acts. We're called to be a church that has the same focus, that, that, that has the same priorities of reaching the world, which means we're going to run into a lot of the same problems. And what we're going to realize today is that everywhere that God is at work in the world, whether it's in, a, it's in an institution, in a church, or in your life, if God is at work, the enemy of God is going to be at work trying to undo everything that God does. And we're going to see a little bit of what that looks like today. You see, the devil goes to work when God is at work to unravel, to, to sow discontent, to undo, to change your priorities, to shift your focus. Because the devil doesn't want you focusing on God. He doesn't want you focusing on Jesus. The devil wants you focusing on this moment, right here, right now. Because he can, he can take our attentions away from what we want to be and where we want to go, and he can turn our attentions into this moment right now, and he can say, but it's going to feel so good. And so we're going to take a look at what happens when God is at work, but Satan goes to work, and oftentimes... The way that Satan works in the world is just through normal people that give him just a little bit of an opening. And we're going to see what that looks like here. So what do we want to do? We want to believe in God. We want to believe in Jesus. And at the end of the day, we want to believe in God's word through this book. This is how we know God, God's character, God's heart, God's personality. If you don't have a personal relationship with your Bible, I would encourage you to start one. You don't have to set aside an hour of day, because let's face it, you're not going to do an hour of day uh, reading your Bible if you don't read it today. Set aside five minutes. Just set aside a few and begin to develop a habit. So with that, going to Acts 13, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers 
Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Both Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene are from Africa. And so the church has already grown in this encompassing part of North Africa. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The believers are being obedient because they're worshiping and they're fasting. By fasting, what that means is that they're giving up probably food and taking the time when their stomachs are saying they're hungry to make sure that rather than focus on the hunger and the food, they're focusing on God. It's a discipline, much like reading Scripture is. It's a lot of times what people in the season of Lent do. Oftentimes we fast from something that is important to us or that we like. I joke every year that if I gave up something, and I try not to give up something, I try to pick up something. I try to pick up a new discipline, try to pick up a new habit, uh, try to read a new, a new devotion book. Something is what I try to do. I always say it's really easy for me to give something up in Lent. I give up, uh, I give up celery because I hate celery. If you know me, you know I hate celery, but that's not the point. Giving up celery doesn't make me focus on God anymore. But picking up something oftentimes does. And so they're doing what people often do in the season of Lent. And then the Holy Spirit speaks because they're being obedient. If you say that, well, God's never spoken to me. Maybe you just haven't taken the time and dedicated to God to listen to him. So the Holy Spirit speaks and he says, set apart, dedicate Barnabas and Saul, because there's this special work. There's this new thing that God is going to do. And the new thing is the first mission movement. And it ends up being something that all of the book of Acts and much of the New Testament is about. Cindy came up with something, and she's got it in the back table back there. And it's a list of all the missionary journeys. It breaks down the book of Acts, and it kind of puts a synopsis about all these different parts we're going to look at. If you want to grab one of those, you're going to be there after the service, right, Cindy? Yes, she will be. You can get an Acts journal and one of those from her. And I think about it as I'm putting this message together, and I realize it's not unlike what happened 12 years ago. It was about this time 12 years ago. Uh, that I was in an office in another church, and a man named Harlow came and knocked on the door. I don't know, he was probably in his late 70s, and he said, do you have a minute we can have a conversation? And I said, sure. He said, do you mind if I close the door? And I said, no, that'd be fine. This conversation could get you fired. I said, yes, close the door, let's talk. And I didn't know he had that side to him, but you know what he said is, I just believe that God has so much more for us. And I said, what do you mean? And he started talking, and we started praying, and, and before you know it, There was a group of people that were praying and fasting and searching out Scripture and waiting on God, saying, what is it you're calling us to? What is it that that you want us to do? And that was the way the open door began all those years ago. It it began in in a sunroom at our house and with people in the living room and in a coffee shop and other people meeting together in their homes. And today we know that when God is at work, it is God who will see that work through to completion. That's true in a church and that's true in your life. Now, guaranteed, when God is at work, the enemy of God is going to be at work. And it's going to feel like this great thing that's been happening is coming to a rapid close. But that's not the way that God works. That's not what the Bible says. When God begins a work, it is God who will see it through to completion. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This whole chapter is about God at work. But if you've ever been around here, when we've asked you to come forward, and this happened pre-pandemic a lot more, Uh, We just had the chance to pray for a family here between services. We extend our hands. And the reason that we do that is just a way of reaching out and saying, you know, it isn't about us who are doing the speaking. It's about laying on our hands and it's about God who is going to be doing the work. But Satan is also at work. 
Satan is at work in opposition to God, in opposition to God's people. See, we know because we can read the last chapter, Satan doesn't win the war. But Satan keeps fighting these skirmishes. He fights the little battles. And every once in a while, he can win one of those. And when he does, he turns one of God's chosen people, their heart away from him. They turn his focus away. And so God's sending out people to share the good news. That's what we've been called to as a congregation. And when we, when we do that, people listen and people hear the good news of Jesus. And the enemy of God doesn't want people hearing that at all. He doesn't want to hear anything about hope and salvation in Jesus. And so he clouds our ears and fills our minds with all kinds of other noise that takes the place of that message. And you and I, we need to learn to wade through the noise and the chatter and the gossip and the innuendo that Satan uses through people to distract us from what God would have for us. And we need to be able to discern what is from God and what is from the enemy of God. That's why on Sunday mornings we don't stray from God's word. We stay to the Bible and what it is that God tells us. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I read this part, and I think, if I'm going to go on a mission trip, Cyprus would be a good place to go. I've seen the pictures of the place. But that's where they went, and it wasn't all easy for them. See, what Luke keeps reminding us in the book of Acts is, yes, there's going to be trouble, but none of these things happen without prayer and without the presence and the leading of the Holy Spirit. You go back to that day of Pentecost, God's people prayed. And the Holy Spirit showed up, and the church was born all over the world that day. And so every great thing that God does on earth that involves people, it always seems to begin with the presence and the leading of the Holy Spirit and God's people being obedient in prayer. So this is a, a good lesson for us today because these people in Acts, they, they were resilient and they relied on prayer for everything. See, there's some terrible teaching out there that doesn't necessarily rely on the truth of God. And we're going to get into why this is important in a moment. There's a, there's a thing out there in the church, and it's grown up in the last 25 or 30 years. It's called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology basically says this. If you're rich and if you're successful in the eyes of the world, it's because God is rewarding you for your great faith. He is pleased with what you're doing. And so everything that you have, everything that you've earned, is a, is a blessing from God that's special for you because you're especially faithful. It just isn't true. It, it isn't real. And we're going to meet a guy in a moment who's trying to get himself close to power so that he can have a better position in the world. And that's so much of the message there. But there's no Holy Spirit involved in that. It, it, it's more like Herod that we saw last week taking credit that was due for God, and he took it upon himself. That, that's not what God wants for us. Verse 5, when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They went to the churches because in the churches, the people already knew who God was. And now they wanted to talk about the completion of God's promise in Jesus. They had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician. After they'd made their whole loop through this island, they came upon a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was a Jewish man who claimed to be a prophet that Luke describes as a magician. We met one earlier in Acts. His name was Simon. And we were introduced to Simon as Simon the Sorcerer. So there's some things about this guy that we need to understand. But we need to first get a grip on Bar-Jesus. What does that mean? So Jesus was a very common name in that day. In Hebrew, it was Yeshua. Right? So Jesus' name in his original tongue would have been Yeshua. 
Bar functions the way Sun does in Scandinavian. So if you are or you know a Hansen or an Olsen or a Johnson, there was a Hansen, an Ole, and a John somewhere along the line. And their first son was John Johnson and Ole Olsen. Well, Bar means son of. And so it's a very common thing to put Bar before a name when your identity was so important in those days. And so really it's, it's Bar Yeshua, son of Yeshua. His name means son of salvation. Jesus, incidentally, because people might think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't feel quite right. Jesus' name doesn't mean son of salvation. Jesus' name means salvation. And we know that salvation is only in the name of the Jesus. And so this guy, even by his name, is an imposter. Verse 7, he was with the proconsul, a political figure named Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. That man of intelligence is an interesting thing to see there. Luke put that, puts that in because it plays into the passage as we get a little bit further ahead. So this guy, Bar-Jesus, had a position of influence with an important person. And his job, as far as he is concerned, is to protect not that person, but his place of influence. One of the things that I've learned in my life is being close to power and being close to influence and being close to money doesn't mean you have power or influence or money. It means you know somebody who does. And this guy, who's nothing but a magician, he's an imposter, is living life by being close to somebody that has those things. And Satan uses that as an influence on us. He uses it against us because if what you're after is power and influence and money and you get close to someone, Satan uses that as a way in to start to to skew and to change your thinking. And that's what happens here. Verse 8, But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, Paul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He's doing what the devil always does, is oppose people, try to get in the way of people hearing the good news of Jesus. And if he can't stop you from hearing it, he's going to try to stop you from believing it. And if he can't stop you from believing it, he's going to try to stop you from living in it. So let's talk about the name magician. In the Greek, the word is magus. It means wise men. It's interesting because you go back to the birth of Jesus, wasn't it wise men that came from the east to pay tribute to him? The same word in the Greek is used for them, magus, magicians. They understood the stars not because they were astronomers, but because they were astrologers. They were magicians. They practiced magical arts. They studied. They possessed powers that didn't actually belong to them, and they were sorcerers. There's a long history of these guys coming out of ancient Egypt. We first meet them in the Bible when Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's court magicians are able to turn water red, just like he had turned water into blood. But you would think if they had any real power, as this blood water is flowing through Egypt, they would have turned it back to water, right? But they can't do that. All they can do is imitate and copy and provide a cheap imitation. There's a lot written about these guys through history, and they all come out of the same Egyptian tradition, and their source is always the same thing. It always comes from the devil. They were tricksters and conmen, They were tied to forces that have nothing to do with what we should have anything to do with as Christians. The Bible warns us about them. One of the things that sets them apart is all that they can do is access power from Satan that appears to be like God. They can trick, but they can't create anything. They can't heal anyone. They can't do anything of real value. What they can do is be imposters. They can trick people. And that's what this guy was doing. And that's what Satan so often does with us. 
It's like Herod last week when he accepted praise and they said he like, speaks like a son of the gods. And he ended up dying because he accepted that praise that should have gone to God. That's what happens with these guys and that's what Satan does with us is he tries to get us to take the place that belongs to Jesus. So anybody who calls themselves a prophet or a, a fortune teller, someone who says that they can see into the future or a healer, and they claim that their power comes from anything or any place or anyone other than God, actually falls into this long tradition that's recorded in the Bible. The power that they have or that they say that they have doesn't come from them. It comes from the devil, whether they know it or not. And this stuff is still very real in our world. It's very real in our area, and we have to be aware of it. It's why we have to know what God's Word says. We have to be able to discern the spirits, God says. So this devil-fueled trickster, he opposes God and he opposes the men of God and he tries to turn his employer away from the gospel of Jesus because he knows when the proconsul hears the, the, the truth of Jesus, Luke told us he's an intelligent man, remember? When he hears the truth of Jesus, he's going to turn his attention and, and his affection and, and his income and money away from the magician. And the magician is going to be exposed as a lie. But it's the same trick Satan still tries to use today, to turn our attentions and our affections away from God and eternal life in Jesus by making the things of this world in the moment seem much better than they really are. Verse 9, but Saul, who was uh, also called Paul, this is the beginning of us understanding Saul is Paul now, Filled with the Holy Spirit. Same guy. Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is a Roman name. As Paul begins to do missionary work throughout the Roman world, he takes on the name Paul. Luke records that statement so that we are clear that Saul is no Jewish magician who's working in cooperation with the devil. Saul is working with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul, the same guy that had been such a horrible man, who had been filled with sin, had lived a life of sin, had a heart of sin has now been transformed by Jesus, and he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And if there is hope in this world, it's that Jesus does the same thing for you and I. That transition from Saul, the Hebrew name, to Paul, the Roman name, he was a Roman citizen, he went by both names. But by changing that name, it's a reminder that this is a new guy. He's a new creation. This Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus wants to do the same thing for you and I. He looks intently at this bar Jesus and he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Talk about calling the dude out. Could you imagine how that would go in the world today? That wouldn't happen. If that happened to somebody in church, nobody would come back to that church the next week. But Saul is so concerned, Paul is so concerned about Jesus being preached that he just hammers this guy. This man who's a a sinful man with a sinful past who's filled with the Holy Spirit calls this guy out. Verse 11. Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind. He's not talking that God is with him. He's talking about his hand being on bar Jesus. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Saul pronounced a divine judgment that God carried out. And it's interesting because what happened to Saul when he had his road to Damascus experience? When we read about that, he was blinded. And for days he was led around by other people. He went where they took him. He does the same thing to this guy. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here's the thing about the devil. The devil makes promises he can't keep. The devil offers treasures he doesn't own. 
And what the devil does is offers what sounds like the good life when really all that he does is offers death and destruction and disappointment because he's a liar and a deceiver. And the proconsul heard the message of Jesus and he said, I believe. There was enough in whatever he was told and whatever he saw that he completely turned his ways. And now this guy's not only blind, but he's out of a job. And the proconsul believed because he heard the message of life in Jesus. Exactly what the magician was afraid of. Exactly what the devil is afraid of. Nothing has really changed in our world. People still come at us with syrupy words and empty promises, and Satan makes them every day. And sometimes those syrupy words and empty promises come out of mouths that we think we we should be able to trust. So we have to know Jesus in a personal way. We have to know God's word in a way that we can discern between what is the enemy and what is God. Because at the end of the day, Satan wants to trick you into something. He wants you to stop looking at eternal life, who it is that you are living to become and where it is that you're going, and he wants you to live just in the moment. He wants you to live for whatever thing he can put in front of you to make look good. And that's how he turns our attentions away from God. Now we're going to jump forward. That's verse 12. We're going to jump forward and and go through the next about 30 verses here. Paul and Barnabas go out and they talk about Jesus. They talk about his ministry, his life, his death on the cross. And then in verse 40, they repeat this warning to the Jewish people. They say, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. They're repeating the scriptures that they call their own. The prophet said, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He's saying to them that God is doing something that they're not going to believe, even though they're in the midst of it. They're watching it happen. He's telling this to the very people who insist that they know God the best, who say that they're special, that they're the ones that God has put favor on, that they're blessed because of him and because of their faith. And yet here they are completely missing the whole point of salvation in Jesus. We don't want to get so comfortable in our life and in our faith that we miss the truth that God has for us. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. The people want to hear the truth of Jesus. The Gentiles are so excited. They're saying, will you come back next week and tell us more? And after the meeting, verse 43, of the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. They had a crowd. They were gaining disciples in the name of Jesus, who, as they spoke with them, urged them, continue in the grace of God. They're cheered them on, say, keep saying what you're saying. Keep doing what you're doing, because people need to hear it. We're hearing life, and all we've ever experienced is death. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This isn't a revival. This isn't people coming back to faith. This is people hearing the good news of Jesus for the first time, and it's completely changing their lives. The name of Jesus, when it's spoken, is so powerful that when it's spoken in truth, people flock to hear more about him. I think one of the things that we've managed to do right here in 12 years is we've never strayed from this book. We've always said that we promise you all of our messages are going to come straight out of God's word. And what is said from here is going to, going to be accountable to this book. Not what we think or a great book we read about it. We just preach Jesus and him crucified and how much God loves you. However, sometimes that's not popular. Sometimes in the world there's people that don't want to hear it because Satan is still at work in our world just like he was 2,000 years ago. And for 12 years we faced opposition. And it's come from really sometimes disappointing and discouraging places. But the Bible says that we should expect that. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, 
They were filled with jealousy. So this is the religious people. This is the church folks. This is the Pharisees and everybody that follows them. They were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. That's a powerful word. The Jewish religious leaders and the people that they held influence over began to speak against Paul. The Pharisees did what they do so well as they point their fingers at other people so no one looks at them. Every church in the 2,000 years since Jesus was here has had their Pharisees. Every church has had those people that are more concerned about rules and laws and religion and tradition and the sins of others than about the fact that God might be at work in a new way among his people. Their response hasn't changed either. The, the tools that they use, what, what the devil used through them doesn't change. They're filled with jealousy. They immediately begin to argue or stand against whatever it is that God might say in his word. Just like the Jewish leaders, they contradict and slander and revile the men and women of God. And if you've ever dared to share your faith in public, you know this is true. If you do it once, it might go really well and people are really grateful. You do it two or three times, someone's going to hear you, whether it's the person you're talking to or someone near you, and they're going to make fun of you. They're going to make a, a mean comment. They're going to do something to try to tear you down. And here's why, here's why the devil does that. Because if the devil can convince you that you're going to be made a fool of to share your faith, you're going to be quiet and you're just going to do it in safe places with people that already know. But you know what? If you know that that opposition is come, going to come and that God's word is greater than whatever the devil does, you're going to keep at it. You're going to, you're going to keep talking. One of our elders told me a week ago a statement that just absolutely skewered me. He said, how much must we have to hate someone not to share the good news of Jesus with them? And I can't get it out of my head. I don't want to hate anybody, but I look around me and there's some people I haven't shared Jesus with. How much I, must I hate somebody not to want to share Jesus with them? Because we're talking about an eternal difference here, not just whatever difference we might have in this life. We're talking about eternity. And yet Satan does the same thing to convince us to keep our mouths closed so we don't get made fun of. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, for behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. God chose to speak about Jesus to the Jewish people first. And the Jewish people put him on the cross. And they rejected God's son, and so God moved on to the rest of the world, which we can be awful grateful for because that includes us. But what a statement from Paul. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I think every time I don't believe in God's promises, every time I think that my problems are bigger than what Jesus can handle, every time I think that, that the things in the world are beyond what God cares about, I realize I'm judging myself unworthy of God's love for me. I'm judging myself unworthy of God's eternal life that he promised in Jesus. And so the Satan, even, Satan even works in our minds to get us to doubt and to question. And we need to be able to discern those voices. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. If you are a believer in Jesus, God has made you a light to the people around you that don't know him yet. And here's the thing. You aren't going to ever save anybody. That's not God's call on your life. God's call on your life is to be a light to talk about Jesus so that Jesus can save people. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, 
They have a very different response than the Jewish people. They begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. The Gentiles started celebrating. They threw a party. They're going, Jesus, they'd heard about him, but now they're realizing he's for them. What they would have heard first is, well, he came for the Jews. He didn't come for you. He didn't come for us. Now they're hearing he did, in fact, come for them. And so they start celebrating, and the word of the Lord spreads through the whole area. But not to the ones that thought they were special. Not to the ones that thought God would treat them different, that God would treat them better. Not the ones that were full of religion. Not the ones that thought they were above sin and beyond any need for Jesus. No, no, no. They had a different response. In verse 50, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. The Jews went to the devout women and to the leading men of the city. They went to the rich and the powerful. They went to the people that everybody else would listen to if for no other reason than out of fear. Well, I'm not as good as he is. I'm not as good as she is. I better listen to what they're saying. The Jewish leaders went to the spokesmen and women. And they got them to incite persecution, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas so that it drove them out of the district. The religious people, the ones that should have known God the best, incite division among the wealthy and the famous to persecute, to attack, to lie, to gossip, to spread false rumors against Paul and Barnabas so that they're driven out of the district. Can you imagine the church people doing that to someone that wanted to talk about the good news of Jesus? Some of you have come from churches and come from experiences where that's exactly what happened to you. Satan's still doing the same thing today. But Paul and Barnabas, while they're, the Jews are refusing to allow Jesus to be proclaimed because Jesus had power against their religiousness, <laughs> Paul and Barnabas decide, that's not going to stop us. You don't want us here? That's fine. We'll find other people to listen to. People still oppose God's word. People still oppose God at work in the world. Churches that stand on God's word and not on man's teaching encounter opposition. We've encountered opposition. If you've dared to share Jesus, you've encountered opposition. I hope it hasn't stopped you. It hasn't stopped us. Because we know the opposition is going to be there. And it almost always comes from other Christians. Very rarely does someone who doesn't care about Jesus tell you to be quiet and stop talking about him. If somebody who's got an issue because of an experience of theirs or, or the way that they were treated, it almost always comes from other believers. But I can promise you this, the disruptions and the distractions aren't over. COVID may be winding down this phase, but there's something else out there. There's something else that's going to hit us. There's more fear around the next corner, whether it's political uncertainties, people doing things that they shouldn't be doing with politics or or the economy changes inside the church and changes in our world are going to continue. But the thing is, it might feel like it's rocking your boat, but you've got to remember that Jesus is the one that calms the storm. It might feel like those things are out of control and that there's nothing that God can do about it. But you know, As people who are obedient to God, all that we need to do is to start by focusing on and loving Jesus. And then we love people, and then we help and teach people to love Jesus. So what do the disciples do after having this horrific treatment from their own? Verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. There's this ancient tradition in the Middle East that when people don't treat you well, the sign that you give them for you're moving on and, and you're not worried about them is you brush, brush the dust off your sandals. 
It's like I'm leaving every trace of you behind. We have different gestures we use today, which we're not going to demonstrate. But it seems like a silly thing to us, but it was a powerful statement to them. That anything that you might have put on me, the dust off my feet I'm not even carrying with me, we're moving on, and the apostles moved on. And it didn't even slow them down. It says they're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They take this horrible treatment. And rather than stopping them going, man, we deserve so much better, they leave with joy in the Holy Spirit. They shake the dust off their feet, and they went on their way preaching Jesus. And so it makes me think, what will we do? Who will you be? Who will I be? Because it's easy to not have, have persecution. It's easy not to face opposition in the world. You just be quiet. If you don't ever say anything controversial, no one's going to come after you. But the moment you say something about Jesus, someone out there is going to listen. So what will you do? Who will you be? We've got two examples. We've got, we've got scoffers and disruptors to the work of God. And then we've got the ones who pray and who worship and who fast in the season that they're in. We're in the season of Lent. We've got a built-in reason to start picking up new disciplines that bring us closer to Jesus. So who are you going to listen to in the world? Are you going to listen to the voice of the enemy, or are you going to listen to the voice of God? See, if you want to know about the voice of God, this book will tell you who God is and how God thinks and how God works and how much God loves you. The enemy of God will tell you the exact opposite. So who are you going to listen to? What are you going to choose to say? What, what will be the words that you bring out into the world? Will you be like the early apostles and missionaries that we're learning and going to learn more about that speak life in the name of Jesus? Or are you going to get distracted by the enemy and caught up in the opposition and become a part of what's getting in the way of God at work in the world? And it sounds dramatic, but it's a decision we have to make every single day, many, many times a day. So we've got these 30-some days until we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. What a perfect amount of time, because it isn't too much. You you can make a decision to do something a little bit differently for a month. What if for a month you say, I'm going to take five minutes and I'm going to read the Bible. Or if you read the Bible every day, say, I'm going to read it for for ten minutes more. Or maybe you're a a twice-a-week person, you say, I'm going to do it every day. Maybe you just say, I'm going to take time away, and I'm going to to pray and I'm going to ask God for some thoughtful reflection on, on how He sees me. Maybe there's things that I need to work on. Maybe take time of fasting or praying or worshiping. Our whole life is supposed to be an act of worship. Knowing that the enemy is going to oppose you. The enemy is going to oppose God and and God's people at every opportunity. But we know that Jesus is alive. And Jesus is in the business of salvation and transformation and the very forgiveness of sins that Satan would keep us bound by. When Satan tells you you're not good enough, Jesus says, yes, you are. I, I already showed you on the cross. When Satan says you can't, God says I created you so that you could. All of those things that Satan would fill your mind about are the exact opposite of what God would have you know. So we were created to use our mouths to proclaim Jesus and life in his name. That's what we talk about doing as a church all the time. But that's what we need to be doing as Christians. So let's do that. Let's agree to be people who work with God because God is at work in the world around us and in us. Let's pray. God, this is a challenging chapter. It's a lot of words. There's a lot that's going on. But God, we meet another man who is a magician, who's a trickster, who tries to use deception to keep the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, away from hearing about you. God, we've got people around us to try to keep us from hearing the good news of who you are for us. They, they try to tell us that we're not worth it. 
but you don't really care, that you don't know who we are. But God, that is completely opposite. Satan is a liar and he speaks in opposites. And we need to be able to learn to discern what is your voice and what is the voice of the enemy, no matter where it's coming from. God, help us through your Holy Spirit to do that. Help us to know your truth. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe and help us to accept it. Because maybe it's a very different thing than we believe about ourselves right now. God, if there's a radical transformation that needs to happen in someone's heart and mind, it is your Holy Spirit that does that. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill anyone who is just hurting, who's suffering, who's doubting, who's wondering, questioning, not sure that you're real. God, all of those things are what Satan does to keep us from you, to keep us from a a life-saving life-transforming relationship with Jesus, who you sent to do just that, to make in us a new creation. So God, we give you thanks for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a part of the work that you are doing in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the great challenges of preaching is also the great joys. Because one of the challenges, taking a book that's 2,000 to 5,000 years old, and that discusses history that's that old, and making it relevant today. But it's also one of the joys. And so whenever I'm working on a message, and there was like an hour of stuff that got trimmed away and left out, but I'm, I'm on the road one day, and I'm praying, okay, God, how do we do this? How, how do we take this, this text and talk about you know, Satan as a deceiver? Because you go all the way back to Genesis, and the very first thing that, that happens is the snake says to Adam and Eve, did God really he gets us to question. He gets us to doubt. He deceives. So I'm driving along. I happen to be on the interstate. I got my cruise set at 74 because, you know, you got five miles an hour, right? And God says, how fast are you going? Oh, man. Going 74 miles an hour, God. This is literally coming out of my mouth. I don't hear God speaking, but and he goes, what's the speed limit? 70. So you're breaking the law. Ugh. And I thought, but everybody else is because I'm getting past. They're flying by me on the way back from the cities. They're going by me like a million miles an hour. God, I'm the slowest one out. I'm going to get run over. You're still breaking the law. And I realize it's tax season. And we got the pressure in front of us right now. You know, you earned it. You, don't, you, you can probably claim a little extra. You don't have to claim this. You don't have to do this. By the way, you worked hard. You, you can probably get away with that. We, we got to make that decision. And Satan is constantly doing, like what I did drop my speed back to 70, by the way. Satan is constantly getting us to question ourselves and to question what's right and wrong. You deserve it. You worked for it. You earned it. You ought to have a break. You know what? You deserve that time. You deserve that thing. And constantly he, he's wearing away on us. And every time that he does that, we, we move ourselves a little bit further and further away from what God wants for us. I love that song, right? We're going to be, we're going to be the bride of Christ, a church that's ready for you. But it isn't the church that's ready. The church prepares us to be ready. You will be ready for Christ when he returns. That's what we're working for. When the next song is build your kingdom here, it isn't build your kingdom here in this place. That's part of it is build your kingdom here in each one of us. So as we've got these days ahead where we're looking forward to resurrection the Sunday, we've got this time of repentance and this time of preparation. And we're on earth to be a light of the gospel and to shine brightly for everybody that doesn't know him, knowing you're going to face opposition. And so, yes, we're called to be the bride of Christ. But we're also called to know when that voice says that you deserve it, that that isn't God, that that's the enemy talking. And that's where discernment begins. Those 50 little decisions that we make every day. 
So as you leave here today, think about God is at work in your life. God has given you opportunities every day to be bold like Paul was for the gospel. Not to make your name known, but to make the name of Jesus known.